It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. Antwerp, Belgium, became a piece of very highly valuable real estate during the autumn months of 1944. Being a deep port city, Hitler desperately wanted to keep it, and the Allies desperately wanted to take it back. Hey, this is Eric. Before we dive into this message about the power of fearlessness in the walk of a believer, I wanted to remind all of you that we are hosting a week-long training on our campus in approximately a month. On November 7th, we are kicking off our final training program of the year here on the Ellerslie campus. I would love for you to consider joining in on the fun. Go to ellerslie.com forward slash daily to learn more. Now let's visit the city of Antwerp, Belgium during World War II, a city that is set free from the evils of Hitler only to fall under Hitler's incessant bombing campaign of vengeance. How similar is the six months of Antwerp terror in late 1944 with what we as believers often find when Christ wins us and kicks the devil out of town? It's then the V-bombs of Antwerp begin. But there is an answer to these V-bombs. Let's learn what it is. Uh, we are in the midst of a, a series on, it's called Spiritual Lessons from World War II, and this is part 77. Uh, a very fun name. I, I, I don't know about you guys, but this, this name is uh, pretty intriguing. Uh, the V-bombs of Antwerp. Uh, Antwerp is going to be a very, very strategic location in World War II. Of course, Antwerp would have never guessed it. Uh, and to be honest, they, they wish that they weren't such a strategic location. When you were just a citizen of Antwerp, you just sort of want this all to go away. You don't really want to have all of the focus of all the Allied troops and the Axis troops focused right on your city. And yet... That's what's going to unfold. It's sort of similar to us, isn't it? Uh, that in many ways, we wish we could just believe in Jesus and then hide in a closet. And the war out there, the spiritual battle could take place elsewhere, and it doesn't need to take place right here in the life of Eric Ludi. No, no, thank you. Uh, I, I'm not asking for that. Antwerp didn't ask for it either. And, but the significance of Antwerp uh, is tremendous, just like the significance of your individual life. It's, it's really fascinating in war how different locations will become very, very significant. Just average, normal locations suddenly become the center of a great drama. It's the same thing that can happen uh, with humanity. Right now, you're just sort of living your life, and then one day, boom, God positions you, just as he did David. He is going to train David on a lion and then on a bear, and then boom, he is going to set him on the stage of time and demonstrate his power before nations. And so for each and every one of us to be ready to be in Antwerp, I think is uh, very, very significant. Uh, but this is called the V-bombs of Antwerp. So Antwerp, Belgium, one of the reasons it is going to become a, a strategic uh, location is it is a deep port city, and it's one of the only deep port cities uh, you know, that you can get along uh, this uh, long stretch of the English Channel. It's a very, very strategic place as a result, which means you can get big ships into it. And Antwerp, Belgium is currently controlled by the Nazis as we enter into this story. We are in the uh, early fall of uh, 1944, and uh, the Allies have broken through into uh, France and are spreading throughout France and up into Belgium, which is where Antwerp is. 
and they have uh, taken Paris, uh, France, which is a significant move. And up to this point, Hitler has been running. Now, he, he tried one move, if you guys remember Operation Ludich. I remember I brought attention to that because it's strangely, awkwardly similar to my name. And, uh, and, they, and Hitler, it cost Hitler dearly. So Hitler has had one offensive in this process, and he has one more remaining. Uh, and I don't know if you guys have ever heard of the Battle of the Bulge, but the Battle of the Bulge is just on the horizon here, and it's a very significant battle. Uh, one of the reasons it's significant is it's Hitler's last offensive, uh, and he is going to try, and one of his key things is to get Antwerp back. Okay, so this idea of Antwerp actually is very, very significant and strategic, and it's going to lead to a lot of drama uh, in this uh, war. But uh, the Allies have a problem, and I know it sounds funny to have a problem when you're winning, you're winning, you're winning, you envelop uh, Hitler in your, the fella's pocket, you take Paris, and you're moving up towards Belgium and setting Belgium free, and you even take Antwerp, which we're going to see. They're going to take Antwerp, and that's just the beginning of sorrows, if you will. In other words, with all of this movement comes a challenge, and I'm going to go into that. And it's something that is going to harken back to some of the previous things that we've talked about. So the Battle of the Scheldt is actually what it is called, which I don't know if that helps any of you. It's one of those obscure battles that most of us are like, mm-hmm, yeah, well, that's great, Eric. Uh, the Battle of the Scheldt, the Scheldt is like a river, uh, and it is going to come in through uh, from the ocean into uh, uh, Antwerp and then uh, south. So the Battle of the Scheldt is going to be October 8th through November 2nd. So we're sort of right in that time period. Well, what are we, October 5th? Is that right, October 5th? And so, you know what? This is, it's almost like an anniversary date of this. So I think it's appropriate that we're covering this right now. So just to give you an idea of where Antwerp is, there's Great Britain up there. You have the English Channel, that body of water between. The yellow star down there is Normandy. And so this is uh, on D-Day where the Allied forces are going to sweep in. They're going to hit the beaches where that yellow star is. And then Cain, which is right by the, uh, the bottom uh, point of that star, is going to be where they're going to be stuck for quite a long time. I mean, they had a tough time getting going in this thing. They took the beaches of Normandy, but Hitler was, uh, had his feet uh, dragging, and he wasn't going anywhere. And then that green star is going to be the fella's pocket, if you guys remember that, the Operation Ludich, and then they're going to, the Allies are going to surround him and take out seven to eight divisions and just totally decimate them. And then the blue star is Paris. And so what you see is suddenly they're going to just burst up. Same military group is going to burst up to Antwerp. And that's where the red star is. Now, I'm not going to say that they don't have troops down in the other sections. They do. It's just that I'm giving you a mental picture. This is where the thrust of the war uh, is taking place. And they want to take Antwerp. And if you if you stare at that, uh, you're going to see how Antwerp works. It's actually a really cool uh, land structure, but we'll go a little closer to it as we uh, move on. So that black line that I am creating is what we're going to call the supply line. Now, we've talked about supply lines. In battle, supply lines are absolutely crucial. You could win wars or win battles uh, and then move, move, and you could move fast, but if you get ahead of your supply line, then you have serious issues. And the Allies are beginning to have serious issues because their supply line is that's a long journey. That's hundreds of miles daily that they have to be bringing, what is, I think it's like 200,000 tons 
of materials uh, to the, the front lines. <laughs> I mean, that's just like uh, astronomical. You try and figure that out logistically. And so wh- why do you think they're after Antwerp? Antwerp could be their new port. And so that, that's the strategy is if they could get Antwerp, then they could actually have a deep water port and bring in all these supplies because Germany is just to the right there. And that's what they're trying to get into. And so that's why you see Antwerp become a very, very high priority. So Winston Churchill in his memoir says, without the vast harbor of this city, speaking of Antwerp, no advance across the lower Rhine and into the plains of northern Germany was possible. So the Rhineland is going to be the, uh, the western side of Germany. And so when they say the Rhine, everyone in Europe knows what that is, but everyone in America is like, I have no clue what you're talking about. So the lower Rhine and the northern, in northern Germany, what did they need? They needed Antwerp. If they don't have Antwerp, it's impossible to pull this off. So guess who's starting to realize that? The Allies and Hitler. And so this becomes a very, very central point uh, of the battle. So the number of divisions, this is Winston Churchill speaking, the number of divisions that could be sustained and the speed and range of their advance depended, however, entirely on harbors, transport, and supplies. Relatively little ammunition was being used, but food and above all, petrol, remember our oil issue, remember Operation Pluto, governed every movement. Cherbourg and the Mulberry Harbor, remember mulberries are these man-made harbors that they created, and the Mulberry Harbor at Aramanches were the only ports we had, and these were daily being left farther behind. The front line was still sustained from Normandy, and each day about 20,000 tons of supplies. Did I say 200,000? All right, sorry guys. Uh, 20,000 tons of supplies had to be carried over ever-increasing distances, together with much material for mending roads and bridges and for building airfields. The Brittany ports, now Brittany is different than Great Britain. It is a portion of uh, France, which is down near uh, the uh, Normandy uh, landings. So the Brittany ports, when captured, would be even more remote, but the channel ports from hovering northwards, and especially Antwerp, if we could capture it before it was too seriously damaged, were prizes of vital consequence. Antwerp was thus the immediate aim of Montgomery's army group. So remember General Bernard Montgomery? Uh, remember he had the two puppies uh, named uh, Hitler and Rommel? Uh, so that's the guy that's leading this charge up north. This is under Eisenhower. And so Antwerp is the immediate aim. The 11th Armored entered Antwerp on September 4th, 1944, where to our surprise and joy, they found the harbor almost intact. So swift had been the advance, over 200 miles in under four days, that the enemy had been run off their legs and given no time for their usual and thorough demolition. But our ships could only reach Antwerp through the winding, difficult estuary of the Scheldt, and the Germans held both banks. So they take Antwerp, which is down here to the right, but what they need to do to get their ships into Antwerp is they have to take this estuary, is what it's called, this passageway between the river and the ocean. And so guess who holds the banks of that? The Germans. So you're not very smart if you try and bring a ship through there. They'll just destroy it. And so somehow... They need to win the banks on both sides, and this is going to be called the Battle of the Scheldt. So that's actually what's going to take the time. Antwerp was taken, like, well, that was easy. Hey, the the port's still here. Hey, this works out great. 
However, we can't get any ships there. So this is going to be the battle to take that. And I know it would be extremely fascinating if I went into that. However, that's not my point. My point is to show you the significance of Antwerp, lay a foundation, and then get it to my point. So my summary of this entire battle is hard and costly operations were needed to expel them. How's that? Uh, it's, it's a long battle. It's a hard-fought battle. On November 28th, the first convoy arrived and Antwerp was opened for the British and American armies. So that's a long time. You know, you're going from October 8th when they're going to start this specific operation to November 28th when their first convoy is able to get through that estuary and to Antwerp. You know, that, that's, a, that's a long stretch of time. They're headed into the winter. The Battle of the Bulge is going to be in December. So we are right there uh, at the cusp of one of the last great hurrahs of Hitler as he tries to stop this uh, encroachment of the Allies. Hitler's almost done for, guys. Aren't you excited uh, to just sort of see Hitler done for? However, uh, you know, the devil's been done for for a long time and he still makes a lot of noise. You ever notice that? And so that's what's going to be sort of symbolic in this story is just how we engage when we take Antwerp. It's like a significant victory in our life. We have a port, it, it works, and yet the battle seems like it's just beginning. The devil, I'm going to call him the original terrorist. So when we think of war, we don't always think of terrorism. And terrorism seems like more of a modern concept. However, terrorism has been around for a long time. Ever since the devil first showed up on the scene, uh, you have something called terrorism. The purpose of terrorism is to strike terror. That's, that's it's, its entire goal. I don't think many of us ever think about that. Its goal is to paralyze with fear. And oftentimes, it's an undersized party. In other words, they don't have the strength to actually win the battle. So what they do is they try and win it a different way by striking terror. And terror is a extraordinarily powerful weapon because if you can get that opposite, uh, that belligerent power on the other side to feel afraid of you, it's incredible how their decision-making will shift. Fear is an operation of the devil and it works. If it didn't work, he wouldn't spend his time on it. And so as a result, you're going to see the devil in this situation. Or did I just say the devil? Hitler? Uh, I know, sometimes I get those two mixed up. Uh, Hitler, who's going to terrorize Antwerp. It's his goal, is to terrorize Antwerp. He can't figure out how to win it. That's why he has the Battle of the Bulge coming in. But in the meantime, while he's trying to get together his last offensive, he is going to try and break down Antwerp in any way he can. So, vengeance is actually a key word in this. In fact, that's actually the word the Germans are even going to use. This is like an Operation Vengeance. They are mad. They are, I mean, so hateful of the Allies. And they are so upset about losing Antwerp that they are going to begin to bomb it with a very specific tactic. And that's what we're going to go through. That's the V-bombs. Uh, and by the way, you know what V stands for? Vengeance. They're vengeance bombs. That's actually what they are. And so what you're going to see, I don't know if you guys remember the story when uh, D-Day 
Uh, when they take the beaches, the Allies take the beaches of Normandy, do you remember the retaliation, the vengeance that is going to come on London? Well, that is going to continue even with V-bombs, okay? They're going to, they, they start with the Luftwaffe and they're trying to bo drop bombs and then their Luftwaffe gets taken out. That's their Air Force, the German Air Force. And so they're going to come up with a different method of doing it and that's going to be V-bombs. They're going to figure out, it's like the first rockets uh, that have ever existed. So they're going, it's pretty cool if you were just to study it from that angle. It's like, oh cool, they're inventing rockets. And yet, uh, the, uh, the history of rockets isn't very good, obviously, if you want to look at this story. Because October 12th, you're going to have the V-bombing of Antwerp. So the V-bomb, also known as a vengeance bomb, or a V-1. So if you study V-1s in history, there's also something that came out called a V-2. They were far more accurate. Uh, a buzz bomb or a doodlebug. What's awkward about that is I call my kids doodlebugs. Uh, and so... Uh, hey, you are a vengeance bomb. You know, it's like, uh-oh, I might need to... That's not what I mean by it, uh, kiddos. So I just want you guys to know that. Uh, I do not mean that you're a vengeance bomb. Uh, <clears throat> but they would make a certain sound when they were flying. It's like... And so as a result, they got this term, the buzz bomb, uh, too. And whenever you heard that, it would strike terror in anyone, like in London or in Antwerp. I mean, this is like serious trauma that is for years and years to come uh, that they're going to just, you know, wake up with cold sweats thinking about uh, V-bombs. Could they still hit us? Are they still possibly coming? What is a V-bomb? A bomb with a fuselage made from mild steel and wings made of plywood. Isn't that interesting? V-bombs were aimed toward a target and then shot off a ramp as a rocket. And so, the challenge with these things is they were not very accurate. So you just sort of like, okay, this is sort of the general direction. Let's aim it like this and shoot it off. It's like, this is sort of where we want to hit. And they just get better and better at shooting these things randomly. But then like, they're going off. And this wasn't like a science yet of rocket technology. This is like the beginnings of rocket uh, usage. And so they weren't accurate and they hit things that I'm sure... I mean, I would hope that the Germans would have said, oh, I wish we hadn't hit that. You know, they, they're going to take out so many civilians uh, with these things, and they're not going to hit the military. They're, they're supposed to be hitting the ports, you know, and destroying the ports so that the Allies can't use it. Instead, they're hitting theaters. They're hitting all sorts of things crowded with people. So there's, like, terrible stories that are going to come out of this. I'm not going to go into those, but uh, it's a really, really difficult thing for Antwerp. Let's just say it that way. So there's a picture of a V-bomb. Uh, it's actually a little more high-tech construction than what we were thinking. When you think of plywood, you don't think of the highest quality uh, materials. But I'm guessing in those wings, even though they don't look like they're plywood on the outside, uh, that there is some kind of uh, structure uh, that's coated with metal. At least that's what it looks like to me. I don't know if the original ones were plywood, so I'm not sure because I don't have enough details on it to, to answer that. But uh, So it's a pretty cool-looking thing. looks like a shark. Uh, but they wreaked massive devastation. So uh, this is Antwerp, and if you could imagine uh, the amount of damage that is coming, you have no idea when they're going to hit or where they're going to hit. These guys had no aim, right? They're just shooting these things up into the sky to land in your area. And uh, that's, that's a rough way to live uh, for six months is how long this went on. So uh, what was the purpose of the V-bomb? To create fear, to incite disorder, to sponsor paranoia, to hinder forward progress. So here's what, 
what I want to get down to. This is our brass tacks. When you take a step forward in your spiritual life, you need to recognize that the enemy is a terrorist. His entire design is, if he can't win the battle, is to harass you, is to create a V-bomb type of setup. He wants to hinder you. What what is his game here? You know, he, he lost Antwerp. He's going to lose the Battle of the Scheldt. Is he not awakening to the fact that the Allies are much stronger than he is? He's losing on the Eastern Front. He is massively losing on the Western Front. You'd think he would come to peace terms. I mean, that's exactly what anyone with a brain would be thinking in this time. Hitler, you're about to go down. You do realize that you're going to experience very extreme repercussions, too. If I were you, I would find a, you know, some kind of table to negotiate peace at. Instead, he is making it all the more difficult. This is very similar to the devil. I don't know if you're going to see some parallels in this. You should. The enemy is a terrorist. He doesn't even have it in his brain, peace terms. He, is, he still is convinced he can win this. And that's, that's the way I've described the devil throughout all of this series. Is the devil, for whatever reason, being a deceiver, has deceived himself into thinking that he is going to win. Even though it's very clear God has spoken, the devil loses. I mean, we read the Bible and we're like, yeah, devil says right here that you're going to lose. Well, uh, the devil isn't going to buy that. He has his own truth that he lives by. So why does he do this? To create fear, to incite disorder, to sponsor paranoia, to hinder forward progress. I'm not sure if you were to dig into your life if you've ever been hit with a V-bomb or there v- there's a V-bomb strategy uh, in your life, but uh, I can definitely say there's certain things that can be triggers for me. Even to this day, when certain things come up, it's almost like the buzz of a V-bomb. Bzzz, it's like, oh, it brings back memories. The devil loves to create a sound or a noise or an idea or a memory and then link it with something in the past. I always call it the link method. It's actually what Leslie and I talk about a lot. It's like, oh, the devil's trying to link that. And so, yes, every October, you know, when this happens, boy, that's like this. And he'll create a link to something. And then that will create a shudder, a revulsion inside of you. And it will almost paralyze you for forward movement. And there's a lot of us that actually fall for the tactic. And we actually don't move forward in something because the devil has a little buzz that immediately starts sounding the moment we walk in this direction. And it brings back a memory and we shudder. And we hold back from a forward step in our life lest we get hit with another V-bomb. The V-bombs will not win Hitler the war. But they sure will create damage. And as a result, even though the Allies are sure to win, the V-bombs create a hesitancy for the Allies to do things. And for the city of Antwerp, they start to resent the Allies who have come in to save them. Now they actually are resenting the fact that, thank you for making us your pivotal point of strategy. Couldn't you have found a different place than us? Same thing we do oftentimes, where the enemy wants to turn us on God, on God's ways, on God's truth. I trusted you, God, and now I have V-bombs hitting me. But God in his word says, anyone who lives godly in Christ Jesus will be hit with V-bombs. Didn't you read that scripture? 
It says it right there. I think the translation in the Greek, if you look at it, it's like the bum. No, I'm, I'm joking. <laughs> However, that's actually what we are promised. You do realize you are significant. You are a strategic, deep port city. God wants to bring the fullness of the kingdom of heaven into your life. And then he wants to disseminate that throughout Europe and take down darkness. You do know that you're in Antwerp. I'm not exactly sure that I really want to be in Antwerp because Antwerp gets the V-bombs. I know, it's the ultimate compliment, by the way. The devil is spending a lot of his money and his resource on those V-bombs. He is going to send off, oh, I don't know what it is, tens of thousands of these? That's a lot of resource that he's putting into V-bombs. And you're the chosen target? Yeah, I know. It doesn't sound that friendly and that pleasant, which is why we need a message like this. We need to become sturdy again. There's something very, very amazing about the Battle of Britain back in 1940 when the Londoners are being bombed over and over and over again. And to see them rise up. I mean, it's truly remarkable because it was very hard. And to see this, uh, this brigade who's going to stand on the tops of all the buildings in London and then call out, you know, whenever one would hit, fire! And then they had the fire brigade that would immediately get there and douse the fire. These men would stand on the tops of buildings when bombs are falling, Luftwaffe are flying over, just so that they could be eyes for the city. I mean, it's extraordinary to see the boldness that is going to come out. And then you'd have these bombs that didn't detonate. And they're just sort of sitting there in the city. And so they had these bomb squads that would go out and risk their life to go up and, and to uh, make sure that they disabled the bombs. And a whole bunch of them died because of it. I mean, but they would literally risk their life to save the rest of the city. Some great stories in this. And it's truly heroic how Great Britain or how London specifically is going to rise up and defy the enemy even though they're being just uh, blitzkrieged with this Luftwaffe bombing. I mean, it's terrible. The Battle of Britain is one of the hardest things to study. Every day, Churchill would go out into the wreckage himself, which that's unprecedented for a prime minister to go to the wreckage and to hang out with all of you know, the, uh, the, the steel and the concrete you know, that's dangerous. It can harm you, and things could fall over on you. And he's like, I'm going. And he would even uncover people from rubble. And get dirty and dusty and muddy and he didn't care. And then he would weep openly. Because this was, these were his people, this was his city, and that enemy needed to stop this. We need to get back at this enemy somehow, some way. So just to see that is very powerful. So we have a similar dynamic. Now it's four years later. What was the purpose of the V-bomb? Well, the same thing that we have in our life. I don't know if you can think of things that cause you to stop in your forward progression. It's like, why would you stop? You serve the God of the universe, and he has given you a commission and a calling? Hey, this is exciting. And you can say, well, it is very exciting, Eric, except for, and I go, okay, except for, yeah. what's your V-bomb? We have the fear of V-bombs. Okay, it could be uh, public humiliation. It could be imprisonment. Maybe there's something about your past. It's like, I just can't go through it, Eric. I just can't. Maybe it's death. Maybe you're just fear, fearful of the fact that it could be painful. The devil has all sorts of techniques to try and get us to stop our forward progression. By the way, all of them, bar none, are lies. 
If you recognize that, that every single buzz sound in your life that would cause you to paralyze and to not move forward is a lie. It's not based on truth. It's not like God's going, oh, oh no, yeah, I'm sorry, I didn't figure this into the equation. But yeah, I guess you probably shouldn't go forward because there's a whole bunch of V-bombs out there. God forewarns us and he says, there will be V-bombs in your life, but don't fear them. That's his message. His message is, no, 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 no. Those V-bombs have no power over you. Your job is to march forward. So six months of terror. Could you imagine six months of this? Isn't that, that's about the same amount of time we've been going through the coronavirus, isn't it? I think I would take the coronavirus over V-bombs if you gave me a choice. V-bombs would be really, really challenging because this is like a quarantine. They're like stuck in their cellars. I mean, this is a really, really difficult season for those in Antwerp. So 2,150 V-bombs fell on Antwerp and its surrounding area in 167 days. Now, I know you heard me say that there were probably over 10,000, maybe 20,000 V-bombs that were shot off. Well, that's what I'm going to get to. Not all of them landed, but 2,150 landed. They fell on Antwerp and its surrounding area in 167 days. Over 4,000 people were killed from these V-bombs and over 90,000 properties damaged. So that's, that's some serious uh, wreckage. That's, these are just like civilians that are hanging out in Antwerp. And 4,000 is a lot because one bomb might kill four, for instance, because it hit a home directly. And you know, then some, there was a theater hit with 547 people in it. Uh, and I mean, this is like, so each one is going to add to this casualty total. Oh, guys, this is exciting. Introducing Antwerp X. No one knows about Antwerp X. It is highly classified. I don't know why it's highly classified. It makes no sense that it was highly classified because to me, you'd think that everyone would want to know about Antwerp X. Antwerp X is uh, pretty cool. It's 22,000 anti-aircraft gunners stationed in every open space throughout the city and they were given a job of shooting down the V-bombs and saving Antwerp. And so there, 22,000 anti-aircraft guns are positioned all over them. Every open space would get one. And then when they would see a V-bomb, their job was to shoot it down. I like that. And I, why this was a highly classified mission, it's like, well, what, I don't, maybe they didn't want Hitler to know that they're going to be shooting down all of his, uh, all of his missiles. I, I have no idea what the, why it was... Uh, Highly classified, but that could be the reason. So General Bernard Montgomery, who was over this operation, says you will be doing well, uh, Antwerp X, the Antwerp X operation, if you have a 50% success rate. So if we can stop 50% of these V-bombs from landing, we'll be successful. So and the Antwerp X, Antwerp X operation established a 60% success rate for the first four months and then sharpened to a 90% success rate in the final stretch. Isn't that a pretty cool concept? And supposedly no one even knew about this. It's just that most of the V-bombs were actually being taken out. By the end, in the last couple months, nine out of every 10 were taken out. So the fact that, what, however, 3,000 or whatever actually did hit, uh, that's a, a significant amount uh, that did not hit. Now, the Antwerp X operation, this is what I want to meditate upon. Do we have an Antwerp X operation in the Church of Jesus Christ? 
We are under siege when we move forward in battle. We, we recognize that. Many of us have felt it. Many of us know the buzz sound of the V-bombs very, very intimately. And we can awaken in the night with a, with a, uh, a start just sort of thinking and dreaming about a bzzz, uh, flying through the air. Of course, it's not V-bombs that affect us. We have likely not been traumatized by World War II V-bombs. But whatever the parallel is, I just want you to put your finger on it. And I want you to recognize that there is an answer in the kingdom of heaven to the enemy's nonsense. To the things he decides to bring against us, we have been given weapons. We have been given an Antwerp X. And whereas the Antwerp X of 1944 was, you know successful if it got 50%, the Antwerp X of God's kingdom is actually far more proficient. Ephesians 6.16, listen to this Antwerp X operation. Above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. Huh, I could use a little of that right now. That's an Antwerp X operation. Could you imagine? That's like 100%. I don't, let, let's look at the word here. All the fiery darts. 100% success rate against the fiery darts of the evil one. Will, will the fiery darts come? Oh, yeah. Yeah, will you hear the buzz? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. However, you have been given something, and it's known as faith, ironically, to stand up and to repel it. There is something that we have been equipped with. So right now, you hear the commission afresh, and I say, all right, onward march, and then you immediately start hearing buzzes, 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 and what your soul does is it pulls back, and it says, but the buzz. Yes, I know, but here's what I want you to remember. God is greater than that buzz. So the buzz is a lie. It is telling you and attempting to convince you that it has a greater power over you than God has over it. There's a, a funny thing that can happen where we have more faith in the power of sin to control us than we do in the power of God to deliver us from it. Do you see something wrong there? When your faith is in the enemy's ability to keep you at bay, and you actually are convinced he's very good at that. Yeah, that buzz really does keep me from moving forward, as opposed to putting your faith in God's ability to actually overcome all of your obstacles. So yes, the enemy does have V-bombs, okay? I'm gonna go on record as saying, yes, that's correct. If you're in Antwerp, it's like, is it true that the enemy has aimed all of his V-bombs right towards us? It is true. But we're bringing in Antwerp X. Now, if you were in Antwerp back in 1944, you might, might go, so how good is Antwerp X? <laughs> well, you know what? Our goal is to take out at least 50% of them. So what I hear you saying is that 50% will not be taken out. You know, that's, that's what most of us would face, okay? In your Christian life, if, you were, if God were to say, you know what? I'm going to give you a shield, and that shield should be able to quell about 50% of the fiery darts of the evil one. Well, I mean, you're going to be thankful that you have it. Okay, don't get me wrong. But you're going to still be paranoid about fiery darts. Because there's 50% and you don't know which ones they are that are going to still get through. Instead, we have been given a shield of faith 
that repels 100% of them. If you knew that you had a shield of faith that repelled all fiery darts, would you fear, would you reasonably fear a fiery dart, even if it made a buzzing sound when it went through the air? And I think arrows do make a buzzing sound. I was just in an archery class with Kip, and I wasn't listening very closely to my arrows as they flew through the air, but correct me, does anyone know what, what sound does an arrow make? Is it a whizzing sound or a whooshing sound, or is it a buzzing sound? It's a whizzing? A whizzing and a buzzing, that's similar, Okay. So a fiery arrow is going to make a whizzing sound, okay? And we're used to that whizzing sound, and we're also, many of us have a past history of that whizzing sound leading to an, oh, it got me! And as a result, we are, well, could we say fearful? Could we say paranoid about that whizzing sound? But if you knew that you had an Antwerp axe that was... 100% successful against every whiz, against every buzz, against every whoosh of the enemy that could possibly come against you, is it reasonable to fear? Does it even make sense? Is it logical to fear? I know some of you, you're thinking, fear is not a logical thing. It actually is, and the kingdom of heaven it's supposed to be. In other words, the kingdom of heaven is going to give you everything you need so that logically you can conclude, it doesn't make any sense for me to be fearful. Because if it's true that I am in Christ and he is a strong tower and that arrow cannot get through the strong tower, well then I am not going to fear that arrow. When you are on a cold winter's night, and I'm not going to say in Colorado, I'm going to say in your hometown because we, you know, Colorado's gotten a bad reputation for snow storms and things like that. We're actually mild here. And so with all the, you know, some of the students in town are still wondering, you've seen the mountains a couple times because of the wildfires. I don't want to throw Colorado under the bus here. But so you're back in your hometown and it's like, oh, what, negative five degrees and you got that sleet that's, you know, just flying sideways through the air and it hurts. Have you ever been hit by that stuff? That, that actually hurts, like little ice. Right? Now, would you fear that sleet And that cold, you know, if someone says, yeah, you can get frostbite, you can get hypothermia if you're out there for such and such an amount of time, would you fear any of that if you were in a house that was heated at 70 degrees? It would be illogical, wouldn't it? It's like, but I'm so so afraid that I'm going to get hypothermia. But you're in the house. (laughs) And so in the house, it is irrational and illogical to fear that which is outside the house. Now, if you were outside the house, I get it. I understand why you could understand that you could get hypothermia, but you're not outside the house. You are in the strong tower. You are in the fortress. So if you're in the fortress, then it follows that you would not fear that which would happen to you if you were outside the fortress. Should you fear the coming judgment? There is a coming judgment, guys. It is coming. It's like a a whiz, a buzz. It's coming. You can hear it. Should you fear it? Not if you are in Christ. You see, your position defines your attitude and your approach. And if you are in Christ, you do not fear what man can do to you, what Hitler could launch against you, if we're talking World War II. So let's meditate on that real quick. We are supposed to be immune to terrorist threats. Could you imagine? Part of the gift that we receive in the kingdom of heaven is an immunity. An immunity to terrorist threats. 
to buzzing sounds and to whizzing sounds to whirring sounds and whooshing sounds. We've been given an immunity where they don't strike terror anymore. But we can actually hold them in contempt and derision and laugh at them. You see, we have been given something, a confidence. It's called a faith, which is why it's referred to as a shield of faith that repels. You have it. The question is, are you using it? Because there's a lot of things that you can have and not use. You notice that in your time as a Christian? You can have something, but that doesn't mean you're wielding it. So the enemy comes up and he's like, hey, 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 bops you in the nose. You're like, oh, oh, bloody nose, bloody nose. And then someone whispers to you, like, why, why are you letting him punch you in the nose? Well, because he punched me. I mean, how, what am I supposed to do? My body's here, he's right there, his fist came and hit me in the nose. What am I supposed to do? Well, you've been given a sword. It's right there at your ankle. So you could pick it up and just sort of hold it out like this and watch what he does. All right, you don't even need to be that good in swinging it. Just sort of hold it up and watch him wince. You see, you have been given weapons. If you don't wield them, the enemy will take full advantage of your ignorance and of your non-action. He's very aggressive and even stupidly so. In other words, he, but he knows when he cannot do something. And when he is resisted, he has no choice. Even legally speaking, he has to relent and leave. So we are supposed to be immune to terrorist threats. Let's go, let's go through some of the scripture. Psalm 56, whenever I am afraid, I will trust in you. So you hear the buzz, okay? What does that immediately strike? It's, you know, the, the feelings of that terror, that past remembrance. Okay, I get it. I get it. But look at this response. In that moment, I will trust in you. In God, I will praise his word. In God, I have put my trust. I will not fear. What can flesh do to me? We could, instead of flesh, say Hitler. The Nazis. The devil. All that oppose, what can they do? I will not fear. In God I will praise his word. In the Lord I will praise his word. In God I have put my trust. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Have you ever decided to sort of come to the similar conclusion? Because this is, this is reasoning. If I have put my trust in God who is a strong tower, then I will not fear that which can't get through a strong tower. So imagine we have a wall and we're just going to make it a simple, normal, everyday wall like a castle wall, and say it's like two feet thick, okay? I'm not making it of diamond. I'm just making it of some kind of stone or rock, right? So it's just a good tower. And some archer on the outside has an arrow. He even lights the end with fire. And he aims it right at the wall of that tower, where you are. You're on the other side of that wall. Should you fear that arrow? Why would you? There's a barrier between you and that arrow, and that barrier is sufficient to quell that fire arrow. So the question is, do you know your position? Because if you know your position, you do not fear what would have to get through Jesus to get to you. So, the logic would be, I will not be afraid. I will not fear. Again, Proverbs 18.10, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run to it and are safe. 
He's a strong tower. And if you're in a strong tower, you don't fear an arrow hitting you. Because the arrow would have to go through, logically speaking, it would have to go through the strong tower to get to you. And that strong tower is so strong that it wouldn't let an arrow go through it. Psalm 61, three through four, for you have been a shelter for me, a strong tower from the enemy. I will abide in your tabernacle forever. I will trust in the shelter of your wings. Selah. Or Selah uh, for one of our students in here. That's, uh, so sorry, I mispronounced that for you. Uh, Psalm 91.2, I will say of the Lord, he is my refuge and my fortress, my God, in him will I trust. I mean, that's Psalm 91. That's good stuff, guys. That's like the impenetrable, a thousand may fall at my side, 10,000 at my right hand, but it will not come near me. Do you dwell in the shelter of the most high God? You know, throughout history, men and women that knew Psalm 91 have done very daring things. They have walked straight into buzzes and whirs and whizzes, like literally zones of it. Like, for instance, plagues, where they have gone in where the sick are with the plague. They have the, these people have the plague, and these Christians believe that they are preserved. And so they go in to be the servants to help them, because who else would? You see, Christians know something that the world does not. They have something the world does not. They have an immunity to fear, to terrorism. So therefore, we are willing to boldly do things that no one else on earth would ever dream of doing. And it's all very logical to us. Our God is greater. If it is true that our God is for us, who, what can stand against us? V-bombs? Ha! And if, if you were you know, in, in Antwerp, this would be a good message to try and work through because if you're in Antwerp and buildings are falling around you and you hear screams in the night, you know what, it, it'd be a harder sell job on all of us to say, well, what do you, how can I not fear this? Well, and that's the way we could all feel right now when it comes to certain things in our life. If you have been hurt or heard the screams nearby or even had someone that you love that has gone through something, boy, I tell you what, we are so susceptible. This is how terrorism works. Fear begets fear. And so if someone next to you is screaming their head off, it's amazing how it can cause you to scream. It's like uh, the, uh, what, the howl of, of the wolf uh, or the, yeah, the timber wolves, one howls and the other one can't help it. They start howling and then they all start doing it. Uh, Gracie and Jackie are two dogs. One of them yips and the other one immediately, I mean, you're talking less than a second later is already yipping too. I mean, it's like they're wired. A yip begets a yip. Fear begets fear in the body of Christ. If I started panicking up here, it's amazing how susceptible you guys would be to the same panic. Because I'm supposed to be leading. That would be a very, very poor way of leading, by the way. But if everyone in a city, which is what's going to happen in London in 1940, everyone is going to start getting into a defiant position. We're not going to fear the Luftwaffe. We're not going to fear these bombs. In fact, we're, they thought everyone was going to scatter out of London. It's the most populated city on earth in that time. And it's being bombed daily. And no one leaves. The king and queen stay 
Churchill stays unprecedented. They are defying it. We will not fear what you have to dish out. And as a result, it changes the course of history. One little island nation, one city that refuses to bend its knee to terrorism is going to rise up and end up taking down this great power. This is where it starts, though. It starts with the decision of soul to not be afraid. If you give in to fear, now you're playing the devil's game. He's got you right where he wants you. But if you reason God's way, nope, nope, I'm not going to fear it. But your building could be bombed tonight. Hitler, Hitler, make sure I get my characters correct here. Churchill would go for a stroll in the evening. You know, the sound of the hum of Luftwaffe is in the air. There's another term, hum. Uh, The hum of the Luftwaffe is in the air, and he'll go and get his, uh, I forgot what he called it, his nightcap, probably (laughs) something he shouldn't have been drinking. But he would just go, and his bodyguard's like, sir, but we should uh, be back at, uh, you know, in the cellar. We should be uh, underground. And Churchill sort of looks at him. I don't know if you guys ever heard this quote, but this is good. This is early in the series. And he says, uh, I forgot what the guy's name was, but uh, <clears throat> you do know that I have someone else watching out for me. And he goes, who is it, Smith? Uh, and, and Churchill points upward. He goes, I have a job to do, and he's going to make sure I get it done. Isn't that good? Yeah, we could use a little of that Churchill stuff. Have I mentioned that my middle name's Winston? <laughs> And it's not just peace in the midst of the storm of V1s, okay? It's not just, I will not fear, but we have weapons. It's also knocking V1s out of the sky. See, that's exciting. It's not just the, the, the lack of fear that they're going to hit us. It's the fact that we have weapons to take them down from hitting others, too. That we are an offensive machine, not just a defensive one that says, okay, I'm not going to fear. God will preserve me. James 4, 7, your job, submit to God. Trust him. Now, in that position of submission in that strong tower, I want you to do something. I want you to send off your anti-aircraft missiles. I want you to take out those V1s. So, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. You have not just been given defensive fearlessness, where you do not give way to the intimidation tactics of the enemy, but you have been given offensive strength to actually take out his attempts to harm. Not just you, but others. When the enemy moves against us and we resist, and I've said this many times before, it actually strengthens us. So the enemy's attacks on us actually make us stronger in a strange way if we appropriate them properly. The enemy moves in with a V1 attack. You hear the buzz, the whiz, the whir, the hum, whatever it is that best uh, elicits the idea inside of you. And actually you resist it. You have been given weapons of warfare that are not of this world, they're not carnal, but they're mighty to the pulling down of strongholds. To destroy what the enemy is seeking to do to devour the people around you, the nations of this earth, we are not a helpless crowd of people known as the church. We are an offensive juggernaut that is unstoppable. 
The Allied force has turned into a juggernaut, and they will not be stopped. It's just a matter of time. The Church of Jesus Christ must awaken just like the Allies did in World War II. I'm not interested in taking land and nations. I'm interested in taking the territory of God, the souls of men, back for Jesus Christ. To see minds turned and convinced. To see the fog of deception lift so that people could be alerted and awakened to the exceeding sinfulness of their sin. But also to the exceeding love of Jesus Christ. Our God has done everything required to win this war. Our job is to walk in it and to not step back, to not heed, to not shrink back when we hear the buzz. So I don't know what your buzz is, but I want you to allow the Holy Spirit to touch that buzz and to actually convert that buzz into forward movement. Father, I ask that you would do this work, that you would convince us as your body of your sufficiency, of your ability, and that we would reason as Christians. Lord, there are many people in this earth that have experienced far more trauma and terrorism than we have, and so it can sound trite to say, oh yeah, of course I wouldn't fear that. Oh, we would all fear it. We would all tremble. We would all fall to pieces if it were not for you. But we are Christians. We are believers. We have been supplied everything we need for this battle. Everything we need for right now in history. Lord Jesus, there's a buzz in our world today. Shut up and you can maintain the status quo and people will not uh, think you weird or you can maintain your job. Whatever it is, Lord Jesus, that is attempting to intimidate us and to terrorize us as the saints of God. I pray that it would be silenced and in the authority of Christ's name we resist it. Lord Jesus, we ask that the lawlessness and the fear and the delusion that is attempting to sweep over this nation would backtrack. Take out these V1s, Lord Jesus. Take out these attempts to quash the truth and the ideas of righteousness in our generation. Lord Jesus, come. Come in the power, the victory of your cross. Lord Jesus, may we see and behold the grand triumph of Calvary afresh. It's in the precious name of Jesus that we ask these things. Amen. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder is delivered live and streamed daily Monday through Friday at 8.15 a.m. And our weekend service is streamed at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings. Join us at live.ellersley.com. We invite you to visit us at the beautiful Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado for a day, a week, or an entire season of gospel-centered spiritual training. Learn more at ellersley.com. Thanks for listening.